Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. I can't get enough of that jingle. We probably should retire it soon and do another one. I quite like doing the jingles. No comment. Hello, welcome to Space Poppins in partnership with The Naked Scientists. I'm Richard Hollingham. And I'm Sue Nelson. This time, a space environment special. And in a moment, Dr. Stuart Clark joins us to introduce the royally approved Astra Carta, a new charter that promises to help clean up space. We hear about two missions being built to tackle some of the 27,000 chunks of orbiting space debris. And we meet the campaigners who want to keep the skies dark. So when you've got your lights on or you're exposed to too much artificial light, your brain thinks it's the daytime and it's producing all this sort of like stress hormone to keep you awake, to keep you alert because we're going back to the time when we lived in caves and things were trying to eat us all the time. Obviously that's not the case anymore but we get those stress hormones that's building up in to our systems and it blocks the release system that makes us go to sleep. <laughs> Danny Robertson, a dark skies officer, and we'll hear more from her later. A dark skies officer, it's a cool job. Yeah. On the uh, 28th of June, King Charles unveiled the Astra Carter, an initiative to clean up space and make it all more sustainable. The fear is that unless we tackle all the space junk, some of the orbits we rely on for pollution monitoring, Earth observation, communications and navigation will no longer be usable. Well, astronomer, science writer, author, broadcaster, musician, (laughs) all-round renaissance man, (laughs) and he has a new title... Director of Communications for Earth for the Earth Space Sustainability Initiative, Dr. Stuart Clark joins us. Hello. Hi, Richard. How are you doing? Hi, Sue. Hello. <laughs> Very well. Good to be you. back on. <laughs> it's lovely to have you back on. Um, you're really here to tell us all about this because I, I felt it didn't get nearly as much publicity as it should have done because this is quite a big deal and it's quite a neat title this idea of the astra carta obviously derived from the idea of the the magna carta perhaps why it didn't get so much publicity is it's not in its finished and final form it was almost the launch of the um the idea and the sort of the zero draft of the document um that was published uh, or, or or made available on the 28th, I should say, and the seal, the the Johnny Ives seal was um, was, was shown at the palace, and um, it was a very jolly time. It, it's, yeah, I'm sure, yeah, we didn't get invited, so yeah. Anyway, um, just give us a sense of of why it's needed, because I I, really, I have a bit of a problem with the word sustainable because it's it's rather overused, but. You know, this is getting to be a a serious problem in space, particularly low Earth orbit. Yes, exactly. You know, it means different things to different people. So one of the jobs of ESSI, the Earth Space Sustainability Initiative, is to widely consult both with industry 
and with governments and policymakers and indigenous communities all around the world so that we can converge on an understanding of what we mean when we say sustainable. What's driving the concern for all of this is that if, if everything that's been licensed is launched, in the next 10 years we will launch more satellites into space than have been launched since the beginning of the space age. And put simply... We don't know, you know, we we don't know what the carrying capacity is the is the phrase that people talk about of space is. And it depends on so many things. Technology, you know, can a satellite um, have an artificially intelligent system in the future that will allow it to sense its environment and make course corrections? All those, all those kinds of things. Um, but we simply don't know any of these answers, and so that's why now is the right time to start investigating all of this. Now, you, you mentioned about not knowing what's, you know, the, the definition of, of sustainable when it comes to space. And I suspect that's probably one of the reasons why many people, and I will admit it, even myself, I saw the words astrocarta and I did a sort of big Wallace and Gromit sort of, I find it difficult to get excited about this because how can you possibly make space sustainable i can see how you can try and clear up space debris because that's important but adding the word sustainable into it just seems to me a bit of a stretch go on sell it to me Stuart. (laughs) well you should be excited about it and you should be concerned about it as, as well yeah and how we would initially define sustainable is that future generations can continue to reap the benefits of space that we now have. So space is completely interwoven into our society through communications, navigation, and uh, Earth observation. You know, so many aspects of our lives are now entirely dependent upon space and space infrastructure. So from a sustainable point of view, we need to ensure that... that, that ourselves and future generations continue to reap those benefits and the only way to do that is to make sure that we don't have accidents in space and collisions that we don't lose orbits through space debris uh, all of those kind of things and the other thing is that we don't exclude anybody who does not yet have those benefits from having them should they want to now that all makes sense um what for me I wondered about is, you know, why has King Charles, you know, decided, oh, well, I'm going to do one, apart from the fact that obviously he's a recently appointed monarch and um, wants to make a bit of an impact. When only a few weeks ago we had the European Space Agency and the Director General call upon member states for a zero debris charter initiative shouldn't it all be coming from the European Space Agency and not necessarily from a a king? Well, it should be coming from everywhere. So the thing that I take away from all of this is that it it can't simply be just a space agency because when you're in space, there's no national dependencies or boundaries there. So we have to have a fully international move. To in the, in the end, you know, ultimately, you could imagine some sort of space traffic control system that will have to be a fully international endeavour. It can't be modelled on an air traffic control system like we have on the Earth, because that's nationally. Uh, I mean, it's an international network, but each country is responsible for its own airspace. 
There's no such thing as national airspace uh, up in space. And so for me, the idea that you've got say the King and the Sustainable Markets Initiative, you've got the European Space Agency, you've got a number of other people around the world and you now have a UK Space Agency funded Earth Space Sustainability Initiative looking at this and driving towards solutions. So we know the problems, we want to drive towards solutions and together you know, we'll all come to consensus on what this is. Do you think people have an appreciation? You mentioned the uses of space, and and I did in the introduction as well. Do you think people really appreciate what is at stake here? Because it is a chance to fix it before it becomes a serious problem. Because you see these, you know, I mean, the film Gravity, I suppose, you know, we we can pick holes in that. But that was the idea that, you know, a, a bit of space debris hits another bit of space debris, all goes out of control. You knock out all the satellites. That's a big deal. Back that into the cave. Back yeah. into the cave. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that is a yeah. very big deal. And I don't think that people appreciate that level of integration with space. You know, you, you take your phone out, you use all those services, and you don't think about space. You get to the bus stop and you look at when the bus is going to arrive. You don't realise that's coming from a satellite either. You know, you get money out of a cash point. You don't realise that the timestamp on that transaction is probably coming from a satellite satellite as, as well so that's again it's part of the se remit it's part of my job um, as director of communications is to drive public awareness and interest in all of this well we'll talk more in just a second but avid listeners of the podcast there are there are avid listeners <laughs> of the podcast may remember the launch of Astroscale's ELSA-D mission back in 2021. Now, ELSA-D was an innovative mission to test the technologies needed to remove space debris. I headed back to Astroscale's new shiny facilities in Harwell recently to catch up with Managing Director Nick Shave. It basically works by having a magnetic capture system on board. And what we did is we took a simulated piece of debris or an old spacecraft, a defunct spacecraft with us, the, I'm actually demonstrating this as we as we speak here. Yeah, so I should explain. There's a a, a, a box. So I guess a, a let's, let's use the analogy beer fridge size box attached to a shoebox size box by by magnets. Exactly. Yeah, and the the larger one, which was in terms of mass, is 150 kilo, and that includes some fuel, obviously, for moving around in orbit, and uh, various thrusters, solar arrays, like any satellite, really. But then this shoebox size uh, additional satellite, simulated piece of debris we took with us, uh, basically was attached to our service of spacecraft during launch. When we got into orbit, we ejected it away, and then we simulated how we would go and capture that piece of effectively simulated debris. And we would then get close to it using an operation called RPO, which is Rendezvous Proximity Operations. It, that needs a lot of software and uh, control systems on board the spacecraft and autonomy really built in. And when we got close to the spacecraft and we feel we were safe enough and ready to capture it, what we did is uh, we used the magnetic capture system on the servicer to attach to the piece of debris and then we were, became a sort of stack, you know, one spacecraft and a piece of deb- debris together. Thank you for that <laughs> round of applause. I should say there's a meeting going on in the room, room next door. It's very good. Very good explanation. <laughs> yes. And 
you know, what we would do normally is we would, from, where, from wherever we are in orbit with a surface spacecraft, we'd bring it down to a lower orbit, you know, around about 350 kilometres orbit height, and then release the piece of debris, and then the debris would burn up in the Earth's atmosphere in, in a couple of years, two to three years. What's great about this is you've actually done it, you've proved it, it works. Yeah. Now, you mentioned that's the capturing of, of sort of getting close to the satellite and the, the technology involved in doing that. If you think about a space debris, that could be tumbling, it could be irregularly shaped, it's not going to be necessarily a perfect satellite. How can you do that? That's a really good question, and to be honest, it's, it's one of the reasons we have a lot of sensors on board the spacecraft. We have cameras, we have uh, laser range finders and other sensors because as we start to get close to the spacecraft, we're actually discovering as we go. Uh, we'll try and use as much ground data as we can. There's a whole business now called uh, space situational awareness. So lots of companies are providing this data. But when you're a long way away from those spacecraft in orbit, you can't get really uh, high precision information. So we have to use these sensors on board and we then have to look at what we call the pose of the spacecraft and the tumble rate. You know, how is it tumbling? Is it damaged? What axis is it tumbling on? And so on. And all of that, we don't really know until we get there, you know, within, say, 50 metres of the spacecraft. So we, we do a lot of fly-arounds of the spacecraft, and it's like an inspection uh, to see how, you know, how we can then capture it safely and securely and, and, and deorbit it, as, as I've explained. So what are the successes to this? Because you're, you're developing the next missions already. In fact, just behind us in, in the clean room, they're already... It's quite, I mean, it's, it's a sizable clean room, about three storeys high, with decent-sized hardware in there already. Yeah, we're in the um, build phase for our next mission, which is the evolution from ELSA-D. We're calling it ELSA-M. That stands for End of Life Services by Astroscale Multi. And, uh, okay, a bit of a mouthful, but basically... <laughs> What it, that sounds like you had some letters that you needed to rearrange into something that made some sense. Yeah, I'm sorry about that one. But, but ELSA-M will basically be a much bigger spacecraft to ELSA-D. We use similar technology. We've proven a lot of things on ELSA-D, um, and we're taking that to the next level on ELSA-M. So, yeah, it's, it's a bigger spacecraft. It's got a, an evolution of the magnetic capture system. It's got many more sensors on board, and it's got quite a lot of fuel because we need to do multiple removals uh, or deorbits if you like uh, of different satellites so that's our plan and um, we're looking to launch that at the end of 2025 and I like to think of it as you know the, we're in the foothills of the circular economy in space you know every other industry on the earth like shipping aircraft you know there's always the maintenance phase and effectively the disposal at the end of their lives we don't have that in space yet we put spacecraft up there and we just leave them basically it's been a throwaway culture so we need to develop that circular economy and either service or remove the orbit or you know, refuel or you know, change some components on board. All of that's coming and, and planned. So I think you know, this, this is the, the first stage of that. And you know, we do see you know, a lot of commercial opportunity in this area. Nick Shave of Astroscale. And um, I'm not sure beer fridge size is, is kind of what they were aiming for when you describe it. <laughs> Uh, it did make me smile your sort of references there it also reminded me um of 
and I, I looked it up to check the date. It was 10 years ago that we were in an old rifle range on the Airbus site in Stevenage watching the demonstrator of a harpoon that was firing into a satellite to, with the aim to remove it for space debris. And um, actually 2019, so shortly before the, the pandemic, um, the University of Surrey's removed debris satellite used that design to do a successful demonstration that it, it could be done. So it's quite interesting to hear all these different technologies and approaches. And you'll hear another one in a few minutes' oh, time. Oh, excellent. excellent. I've got another one. Interestingly, none of them have gone for the harpoon uh, Yeah. Well, the harpoon seems so sort of, well, you just think of... Um, a whale, don't you? Yeah. It just seems so. It's quite. But then sometimes the simplest of things of going back to basics. Can I think it was generally be, considered it wasn't the simplest. I loved of things. it though. Yeah. It was just yeah. crazy. It was just crazy. Stuart, do you think private companies are actually going to adopt this technology? I think that the private companies are essential for all of this, and that the satellite operators understand that if they don't remove debris, it causes them much greater problems downstream. So it's an investment now to uh, help their profitability um, later on. And what about, you know, the big elephant in the room? It's um, Starlink <laughs> and the amount of satellites that they're putting into to space. Are private companies like SpaceX going to be on board, do you think, for all this? when, let's face it, they're probably going to be contributing to the increase in traffic. They are, I think, engaging well in trying to understand what the concerns are for keeping their satellites uh, as dark as possible. Um, they also have their business concerns and they're quite aggressive in their uh, sort of capture of orbital market share. Um, but once again, a company like Starlink realised that, that downstream... You know, they're going to have problems if they don't treat the orbital environment um, with respect. And so um, I have every confidence um, that, you know, they will move in the in the right direction as well. How do you get big space nations like China and Russia on board with these sorts of initiatives? I mean, who both have a track record in actually creating, deliberately creating, more space debris by destroying objects in space. It's a bit like the same answer again, really, because, you know, we've we mentioned earlier that there's no national boundaries in space. You know, that's more than just a platitude. I mean, that's just a, a fact of life. So so no country owns orbits. So you can't selectively take out orbits or something like that. So if you were to lose orbits, everybody would lose their satellites and all the capabilities that, that goes with it. So once again, whether or not we're getting on down on Earth with those countries, um, they have every bit as much to lose as, their other, as the other countries do if they don't keep the sort of orbital space as clean as possible. Well, let's hear now from Rory Holmes from ClearSpace. Similar to Astroscale, the business is working to create debris removal technology. We have spent 50, 60 years treating satellites and rockets as single-use items. You launch them, they do something, but then you just discard them. And space is now littered. It's cluttered with all these dead satellites, these dead rockets. They whiz around, crisscross each other's path. They collide. They make more debris. We founded this company because we realized that that's not 
sustainable we have to do things differently so our goal is to change the space industry make it much more sustainable in how it works and presumably you're a company you need to make money out of that so that there is a business opportunity here to do this to to remove satellites to service satellites to provide a sort of infrastructure in space yeah absolutely so there is no real infrastructure in space everywhere else there's infrastructure right if you have a car it breaks down you fix it in space we don't do that we just discard these objects and satellites are crazy expensive right so to, to maximize their use to repair them or extend their life there's a business opportunity there these satellites are doing something they're making money they're serving people on the ground the more you can get out of that asset the better for everyone i do like your your car analogy metaphor i mean that's quite a good good one because it's like if we drove somewhere the car broke down we just abandoned it exactly can you imagine just abandoning your car at the side of the road and buying a new one that's crazy right we and we shouldn't do that in space and we're at a point now where technology our robotic technology our automation all these things now allow us to to do things differently we can go and fix satellites we can go and grab onto them refuel them extend their life all these things are now possible now your first major client is the european space agency your first mission clear space one just talk us through what that will do how, how it'll work it's quite a unique looking satellite looking spacecraft yeah absolutely so we were lucky that the european space agency had faith in us we were a small company at the beginning and we had bold ambitions <laughs> and they um they believed in us and supported us so our first mission is isa's flagship debris removal mission we're going to go and remove this large piece of uh, space debris it's a couple of meters across 120 kilos so it's a, a big a big chunky thing and we, we've designed a satellite with a big claw-like capture system on the front so it's a, a little bit james bond looking we'll go and we'll we'll grab on to this object we'll completely envelop it hold it tight and then we'll we'll pull it down where we can drop it in the top of the atmosphere where it'll safely burn up. And what about your satellite? Presumably that will also need to burn up, at least in this, this concept, this first mission. Yeah, absolutely. So at the end of this mission, our satellite will also come down and, and safely burn up, ending that fiery death that satellites do when they come into the atmosphere. But ultimately, that's not your plan. So the next mission beyond that, is uh, if this goes ahead is clear so that's got backing at moment in the design phase for from the uk space agency and that's even more ambitious exactly so our second mission which we call clear will remove two dead uk satellites from orbit so it's really the next generation so the first mission shows that this is possible the second mission takes us up a level so removing multiple objects from orbit and also to have the ability to refuel ourselves so we can go on and remove more and more objects from orbit that's really the next challenge we mentioned this claw and it is a unique looking idea how does that actually work in space because you you could touch something and we we know this from spacewalking and and the problems that astronauts have had over the years you you touch something it moves you just have real problems grabbing things in space yeah absolutely everything's floating right and as soon as you touch something it moves away from you or it moves in an unpredictable manner so we have this claw-like capture system because it can fully envelop the target 
before we make any contact with it. So when we do that first touch, it's got nowhere to go. Our arms are all around it. There's no getting away from us. And is this going to be soon enough? Because, you know, we're seeing more and more objects. When the multiple satellites that are now being launched on on single launches, particularly with um, Starlink, those sorts of very small satellites, the OneWeb satellites, similarly very small. You've then got some nations like Russia fairly recently had these anti-satellite tests, which creates these clouds of debris. I mean, can you you catch up? Yeah, I think we're... Everyone is waking up to this problem and we see people are now a lot more careful thinking about the end of life of their satellites. They're planning some safe removal or some way of making sure that their satellite doesn't become just another piece of debris. We've unfortunately got a huge mountain to climb, you know, 5,000 dead satellites, abandoned rockets in orbit. That's the large population we have to address. And going forward, we just have to think about it a bit more. How is our satellite going to safely remove itself from orbit at the end of life and people are asking those questions now so that mindset change is happening and we're going in the right direction but we have to we have to really show that we can remove pieces of debris from orbit that's why i think these missions are important it shows it's possible it really is a a demonstrator that we can do this rory holmes from clear space i've just got to say after you saying how basic a harpoon sounds when I heard the claw, all I thought of was in a fairground as a claw comes down trying to grab the ear of a teddy bear and just never quite I makes don't think, it. I don't see how I a don't claw think the timer runs out. It, it's very cool. I mean, you know, it, it's not... That, now, that to me yeah. seems as basic as a harp. It's, it's a very cool looking or, albeit satellite. you've got the equivalent of a teddy bear going at seventeen and a half thousand miles an hour. Uh, admittedly, that does make it um, a little more difficult. Um, Stuart, what do you think of them both? Well, we need to do. Uh, I, I mean, first of all, it's, it's worth saying that I think that the that both companies are just right on the absolute cutting edge. Um, of all this they're they're innovating they're trying new ideas you know and that's exactly what we need and they're bringing this big supply chain of of you know industry behind them as well so they're fantastic for um, the uk economy uh, if nothing else so one of these solutions will emerge as the one you know the one that 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 can capture most of the of the objects and then the others will probably be specialist for the different types of space debris that there is but uh, no i think they're absolutely fantastic there's something we didn't really talk about actually when we talked about sustainability we're not going to talk about removing debris we're actually talking about servicing spacecraft in orbit providing some sort of service i quite like that that kind of idea of of keeping stuff up there because yes. i think um you know we've alluded to in both those those interviews that it's just stupid putting something up and letting it burn up in the oh, atmosphere the, the or car, keeping it up there. the car analogy yeah. was was very good i thought yeah. yeah exactly so that's one of the the remits really of of se here is that we look at the life cycle of the satellite and so that can include design and supply chain concerns and how you make those as sustainable and possible launch and propellants then rendezvous and proximity um, operations are actually getting close to other satellites and looking at them and and then what happens you know when they do burn up in the atmosphere can you you know can you design a satellite that does that more easily than others and all of those kind of things but also of course servicing and can we you know can we 
we can we have a second hand satellite market or the, the equivalent of you know um, and the reason it hasn't Stuart's happened until Stuart's used satellites yeah <laughs> honest Stu's used satellites honest Stu come and kick my wheels <laughs> yes so the reason it hasn't happened until now um, or it hasn't been feasible to even think about it until now it's just the technology it's just you know sort of docking and servicing and you know s- do you need standardised docking ports or refuelling ports and that and so it it's all coming and the reason it's starting now and why it's urgent now and, and has sort of kicked everybody into action is is because of the Starlink and the constellations and the sudden rush um, to launch many more satellites. What about the military applications? Because if you've got the technology that can remove a satellite for space debris and sustainability and clearing up space reasons, you've also got the technology that can remove a satellite for political warmongering reasons as well. Yes, absolutely. And in in that situation, this technology is no different from any other. You can always design something for purely peaceful purposes that it can be transformed into a military use. I mean, look at what's happening with commercial drones in Ukraine. Um, at the moment and as um, as Jan Werner the uh, former director general of ESA once said to me he said just just think about knives you know you can use them to to help you eat your meal or you can you know go out and do somebody serious damage with it so I hear what you're saying Sue I really do uh, it's a problem we have with everything Excellent. Well, Stuart Clark, thank you very much indeed. Are you writing another book? You, I, I can't imagine a time when you're not writing another book. Actually, yes, we, we put on our running order here. Stuart, plug stuff. You must have something to plug. <laughs> I must have something. <laughs> Strangely enough, um, uh, in fact, I met my um, I met my agent this morning just before um, coming over to, uh, to to the office here to speak with you. So yes, there is a new book coming. But what I really want to plug at the moment is the Earth Space Sustainability Initiative. Come and visit us at esi.org essi.org um, where we would like to become and we aim to be the hub for all these conversations about sustainability in space what that means what the problems are and most importantly what solutions we're converging on excellent this is space boffins we're in partnership with the naked scientists Incidentally, you know, I mentioned about the 2013 where we watched the, the harpoon um, firing into the uh, makeshift uh, satellite. You can actually hear that podcast from 10 years ago because there's a massive archive, 12 years, in fact, worth of space boffins on the Naked Scientist website, including uh, more recently a really good interview um, with NASA's new head of science, Dr. Nicola Fox, great speaker, and there are uh, probably more um, astronauts than there are stars, really, aren't there? We've got so many astronauts. I know. We ought to really bring them all together on some sort of mega astronaut podcast. We've done that podcast. before, ages yeah. ago. Or we did it once, I think, for one year because we had so many in that Yeah, year. we could do that again. Yeah, yeah, no, it's good. Particularly as, sadly, so many of them now are no longer with us. It'd be nice to have a huge... Uh, that go oh, that'd be enough for like... <laughs> Hours worth. It would. We have a lot of astronaut interviews. So if you want astronaut interviews, explore explore the the Space Boffins podcast. Absolutely. Do get in touch with us on Facebook or Twitter. And uh, I think we're even on Instagram. Yeah, we've got to sort that out. We say this every time. And And, and we could get on that. And I don't think we should say it ever again. We could get on the threads as well. (laughs) 
<laughs> the threads. <laughs> is that the meta? That is the is meta. That the meta. Well, the meta is the, the yes. Meta's, on the meta's the threads. Okay. Let's get on the threads. <sighs> uh, we're going to stay with the environment theme and the growing concern of dark skies. As urban populations grow, cars, planes, buildings and street lamps are causing more and more artificial light pollution, which is having unexpected impacts from changes to bug behaviour to worsening human health problems. But there is a group of people who want to do something about it. I met up with some of them at the recent National Astronomy Meeting in Cardiff. So I'm Robert Massey and I'm Deputy Executive Director of the Royal Astronomical Society. I'm Danny Robertson. I'm the Dark Skies Officer for Project Norse in North Wales. I'm Pierre Masfrolo. I'm the founder of Dark Source, an environmental light and design practice. I'm David Smith. I'm Social Change and Advocacy Officer for Bug Life, the Invertebrate Conservation Trust. Robert, let's start with you. What do we mean by dark skies and what's the problem? Well, the problem is that the skies which we enjoyed for most of human history, prehistory, and in fact most of the time the world's been in existence, those skies really, for much of the world, no longer exist because we have light pollution that destroys our view of them. So fundamentally, as an astronomer, obviously I look up and I think I don't see as many stars, even as I did as a child, but certainly it becomes more and more difficult to go to places where you can get that view, where you, know, where you can see what you could describe as an uncluttered, unfettered, unadditionally illuminated view of the skies where you see things like the Milky Way uh, you know not just the brightest stars and planets but that rich tapestry of stars that our ancestors took for granted. And David I'm intrigued that you're part of this discussion because this has a direct it's not just something that bothers astronomers it bothers insects. Yeah, that's right. Um, we know that insects are impacted by artificial light. It disrupts their the natural rhythm of day and night, which you know they've evolved to to come out at night or to to go to sleep during the day. Um, and we're seeing the impact of artificial light on behaviour, but also on physiology, on mating, on uh, catching prey and feeding, right across the spectrum. And we know that this is just one of many pressures that are leading to catastrophic insect declines across the planet. I was going to mention that there's a lot of stories at the moment in in the UK about insect decline linked to the the very hot June we've had. And can we factor this then in as well, just the fact we're, we're polluting the night sky with light? Absolutely. It's definitely one of the pressures. Just how big that pressure is, we we don't really know. Um, But really, that isn't the point. We know that this is a pressure. We know this is something that we can do something about very easily. Um, And there's no reason why we shouldn't do that, which may give us a bit more opportunity to solve some of those bigger problems, such as climate change, which which take a lot longer to, to resolve. Now, Danny, Snowdonia National Park, it's one of the areas where it is a dark sky. But what what are the pressures there then? So in our Dark Sky Reserve, we have planning legislation in place so that anybody who's doing a new build, they have to uh, put in a lighting plan to us and we have to have that approved and it has to have dark sky friendly lighting. But unfortunately, light pollution doesn't stick to boundaries and we have a lot of big cities on our boundaries. So we've got like Chester, Manchester, Liverpool. And when I'm on top of Rydva, Snowdon, I can see those cities. The light pollution travels that far. Uh, So that's one of the main challenges is just trying to influence people from outside our area to also use light compassionately because it's an issue for our urban populations as well. They're the ones who are most at risk from the health issues that come with too much exposure to artificial light. So I think people think the Dark Sky Reserves are a touristic enterprise when they're absolutely not. We're doing it for the health of our residents, we're doing it for our biodiversity and we're doing it to try and help the climate as well. So tell me about those health issues then. 
So humans, we've evolved, we're animals, we're part of the animal kingdom, we've evolved to respond to natural lighting cues, so for the longest time we just had the sun and the moon, and we are really responsive to those, but in the last sort of 100 years we've had electric lights start to pop up, and our brains don't know about that artificial light, obviously consciously we know that, but our brain systems and our hormonal systems, they run off natural lighting cues, so when you've got your lights on or you're exposed to too much artificial light, your brain thinks it's the daytime, and it's producing all this sort of like stress hormone to keep you awake to keep you alert because we're going back to the time when we lived in caves and things were trying to eat us all the time obviously that's not the case anymore but we get those stress hormones that's building up into our systems and it blocks the release system that makes us go to sleep so you get a lot of people with sleep issues but they've just recently found in um, medical research that there's positive links between too much artificial light exposure and types of cancers like breast cancer because it's one of the hormonal ones so we're just having too much of these like stress hormones building up in our bodies which is having haywire uh, creating a really negative impact internally none of this sounds good Karem <laughs> are, you, are you part of the solution from dark source I try to be um, tell, tell us about what you're doing so what I do is uh, try to eliminate light pollution through implementing uh, judicious use of light and uh, implement lighting design schemes that can achieve dark skies but also create ambiances and experiences that are uh, inviting to people Give me an example then, how do you mean? Uh, so, for example, we've, uh, I've been privileged enough to work with Danny and uh, Snowden and National Park Authority on a project called Plassey Brandon, it's a national outdoor centre. It used to cause a lot of light pollution. It was a big offender for the area that's recognised as a, a dark sky reserve since 2015. So we implemented a lighting design scheme um, that won several design awards and uh, brought so much kudos and attention to this space, uh, whilst actually creating an, an, an environment that was uh, encouraging people to be out about but whilst still being environmentally friendly and biodiversity friendly. So David can you have both light and things that are human insect friendly? Yeah absolutely we understand that we need light to do everything that we want to do at night time you know we, we we're not very good at seeing in the dark and it's also a safety issue isn't it it's a safety issue you know we want we know we need to make sure that people feel safe and comfortable moving around so really this is an opportunity for better quality lighting lighting that is harmonious with the natural world as well as providing the needs for people and we can do this by you know addressing the low-hanging fruit the lights that don't need to be on when no one's around and no one's using them the advertising spaces the forgetting to switch a light off when you leave the room and, and leave an office block for example so there really is an opportunity here to lower the levels of lighting right across the board to make sure that we're creating a better place for the natural world to, to thrive are, are you winning this robert i mean <laughs> I, I, I was just i was looking at my social media feed the other day and you just saw this uh lots of people from different perspectives covering the launch of the latest lot of starlink satellites for example i mean we're not talking about (laughs) we're not talking about you know street lights there but we're talking about actual pollution of the night sky by reflective satellites you know it's one it's baby steps sometimes it's forward sometimes it's backward i think one thing i'd say we're winning on is raising the awareness of it and i think actually we i mean when i when i first looked at this issue i worked in greenwich 2003 the select committee on science and technology looked at the issue in the context of astronomy and that was great for us you know we took them around and they looked at the sky and they realized how bad it was i mean they probably already knew but it helped uh, I think what's changed in the last few years is that we've seen this broadening of the coalition and the recognition that this is not just an issue for astronomers, but a broader environmental one. And that, if anything, is why we should really care about it. You know, I mean, I want to see unfettered night skies, but equally, 
I recognise that that's not everybody's priority. Um, I mean, perhaps it should be, but what we would really like to say is, look, there is a bigger impact, whether that's on the natural world or our own health. It's a reason we should take it seriously, or for that matter, the stuff Danny referred to in a talk, talking about the fact we can save energy, we can reduce our carbon footprint, we can do all of those good things, and actually, we don't really have to compromise on being able to see our way around. You can design good lighting. The work Karam does is an exemplar of that. We ought to be doing that in cities too. You know, take it on. I mean, we, uh, David and I spoke to the London Assembly a few weeks ago about this, and they've actually, to their credit, produced a pretty good report on it, saying, yes, it's time to act. We should be monitoring. We should be regarding it's a pollutant. So I think groups of politicians, for example, are starting to take it seriously. I think some of the wider public are. There's a long way to go. But I, I think I'm a bit more optimistic about this than I would have been, say, a decade ago when it was just, oh, well, you know, people recognise it. You've got MPs who say, I've got this really lovely dark place. Come and visit my rural constituency. But you're um, saying you, you know, can have both. You can have, I, the, you can have a, a dark sky and development and cities okay, and well, satellites. Absolutely. Of course. You know, the, no, nobody suggests that we want to make the whole world dark. You know, what we want to do is, is have the amount of light that's appropriate. You know, we want to make our cities safe places to move around in, but at the same time, not have a, de- you know, minimise the detrimental impact on our health, on the natural world, on the skies, you know, and working to do that. Just as we wouldn't say, look, we don't say nobody should drive anymore. What we say is there are different ways of moving around, more public transport, more electric cars, all those kind of things, you know. So, yes, of course, there are solutions, and Karen and people like that are working on them. So let, let's make it happen. You know, frankly, if you're listening to this, ministers, you know, this is a call to arms. Lots of you have the power and stake in this. So there is something really positive you can do. Uh, and, Danny, is this a selling point for you, for that beautiful area of, of North Wales? So don't just look at it in the day. Come and look at it at night. Look how dark it is. Well, we do say that half the park is after dark and people expect the night time to be silent and it's not. You go out and that's when most of our wildlife is actually active because it's all evolved to respond to the darkness and use it to its advantage. I'm really disappointed that nobody has said that Kerem is the solution to light pollution <laughs> because he absolutely is. And right <laughs> it is. It is about... I went to Cardiff. We're still in Cardiff right now. It was my university city and I never felt safe here because the lighting is so poor. Poor in terms of there's too much of it. It's too bright and it's too powerful so I couldn't actually see the things around the street lights so it makes you feel more unsafe I live in a rural area now and I feel more safe because I feel more anonymous nobody can see that I'm a woman on my own on the street and so there's ways that we can light that marry all those things together light in its current format is not working it's not keeping people safe people use it as a knee-jerk reaction when terrible things happen and but yeah absolutely people do come to visit Areri for our dark skies we have people coming from all over the UK as far as Surrey I had a couple come to one of my events and they told me they'd never seen the moon and I was like, what do you what? mean? You've never seen the moon. I said, do you mean you've never, you've just never noticed it? And they were like, no, we've never seen the moon. And I was like, I don't understand how that is possible. But people are really missing it. And people are so passionate about it when they do see it. Um, people are always, I think, a bit nervous at first because they think, oh, you're going to come and turn all my lights off. It's going to be like the blitz and you're going to come and knock on my windows. Uh, but that's absolutely not the case. And people absolutely fall in love with the dark skies movement when they do see what it's about and how much better dark skies lighting is because you can see better, you can see the stars and you get more wildlife. So it's just a win across the board, really. Danny Robertson. And actually, since that interview was recorded, which was only just the beginning of July, Starlink have launched another 124 satellites since that interview was recorded with three launches. I mean, it's just extraordinary. I went to the SpaceX website Mm -hmm. 
And, you know, we used to get launches every few months or so. There's a big build-up whenever there's an Ariane launch or whatever. It gets big build-up. Now it's just like, here are our launches from the last couple of weeks. Wow. It is absolutely extraordinary what they're doing with the technology. I was, it was interesting, though, on the, the dark skies um, aspect of, of, of things. I did an audition film for a, a UK BBC popular science program at the time called Tomorrow's World, probably over 25 years ago. And my audition film was all to do with light pollution and dark skies. And I remember filming at Greenwich because the lights, even in Greenwich where you've got, you know, the astronomy (laughs) um, aspect of it and the observatory, it was causing issues with glowworms. And they were only just uh, introducing as well certain types of new street lighting that were facing down so that you weren't getting this light that was sort of effectively going 360 degrees. And 25 years later, I, you know, you think it's so slow to get governments to really take a lot of things seriously so they knew that um you know things things were happening and yeah i don't want to i don't want to sound a downer on it but it, it i suppose it, it it's it's a reminder of how forcefully and how persistent you've got to be in doing anything that's remotely environmental whether it's space debris or dark skies or you know relating to nature that if you don't keep going it will never, never get done because it takes so long. I think it does take a while for all these things to sort of get through the, the general public consciousness and then feed through to government and then lead to action. I think we're seeing it now with climate change, with the heat wave mm-hmm. across Europe and, and the US and, uh, and Africa. I would argue that, you know, having a dark sky or having access to dark skies is almost like a fundamental human right. Yeah. Because you appreciate so much more. It is extraordinary. I mean, even where we live, yeah. we, we're in a village in the, in the countryside, surrounded by countryside, and yet we get the glow from London, from Hatfield, from Luton city sites and all the ones. And yeah, and Luton Airport and actually blasts re- the recently night sky. as well, just the impact of just about less than two miles away in the middle of a field something you know you automatically think oh it's a drug operation and obviously it's not so i but, thought it was some ufo I you know it was you some see these massively plan. bright lights yeah. with lorries in the middle of it's nowhere you've been watching been too watching many, many low UFO. budget netflix <laughs> yeah, productions yeah and why not yeah is that that has had an effect on the sky and that all of a sudden that black sky that we have taken for granted is no longer there so it just takes one small parking lot effectively with very bright lights and that has an effect for miles so yeah no i i agree it's we need those night skies need night skies back Mm. yeah and that's the somewhat depressing (laughs) issue of addition of space profits no actually i think it's fairly positive because we've talked about action haven't we yes and how long it takes and how long and how we've got to keep going so yeah, be determined, grit your teeth. Yeah, campaign for dark skies, campaign for clearing up space. Keep calm, carry on, yeah. and uh, build a harpoon. And in the meantime... Harpoons are great, no matter what Richard says. In the meantime, do get in touch on social media or on email, podcast at spaceboffins.com. Thanks for listening, and um, do come back next month.